here's a problem. So mm -hmm. today Elaine says to me, Hey, Epka, did you think of a cold open? And I was like, no, because you told me that you're going to think you already had a cold open. And then you said, no, 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 no. You were supposed to come up with a cold open. And I was like, no, you already told me you had come up with a cold open. And then you said... That was last week. So instead of a cold open, we have this hot ver open. very hot open. <laughs> yeah. Exciting hot open. I am quite warm. Okay. Because it's a lovely spring day. Yeah, it's all right. Um, what I will say is that people should go watch After Yang because it's a fantastic film. It has nothing to do with board games. Uh, I just want everyone to know that After Yang was robbed at the Oscars and, um, and people should go watch it. It's a really, really good film. Did you like After Yang? Did I watch it? <laughs> oh, you know what my memory is like with... You don't remember with, any any no. film or, or anything. We watched it a couple of weeks ago. It had Colin Farrell in it. Um, yep. It was about the, the android a sibling that... Oh, yes. I'm not going to spoil anything yes, about that film. Yes, yes, I watched that. Yes, that is correct. I did watch that. Wasn't it great? Yes, it was, it was a very interesting film. I was so disappointed that, that it didn't get more Oscar nods. I think it was nominated for Best Soundtrack or something like mm -hmm. that. But because it was an amazing soundtrack. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I enjoyed the lighting in it a lot. Enough about films. Mm. Elaine, why don't you reel us in? Welcome to Talk Cardboard, a podcast about board games and everything adjacent with the punless duo Elaine and Efka. On today's show, we'll be talking about Wind the Film, That Time You Killed Me and the traditional Japanese card game Koi Koi, as well as an interview with someone who's not a dreamer, nor is he a lover boy. He is, of course, the former shut-up and writer Paul Dean. If you want to hear the full interview, it's available along with other bonus content exclusively for our Patreon subscribers. Patreon.com forward slash no pun included. There's, there's some clarifications I feel I already have to make. Uh, not a lover boy, not a dreamer. That's a reference to two... Paul Dean and the Dreamers. And? Uh, well, the lover boy was the band that Paul Dean was the guitarist in. Right, so it's the same Paul Dean. Uh, no. <laughs> no, I mean... No. No, no. It's, it's not the Paul it's Dean that are, There's more than one Paul... The, the joke was, you see, there's yes. more than one Paul Dean in the world. Yes, but the two Paul Deans that you picked are the same Paul Dean that are not our Paul Dean. Incorrect. Oh, so the two separate Paul Correct. Deans. Okay. Two different yes. bands, Paul both Dean, have Paul Dean. Paul Dean of Paul Dean and the Dreamers later mm. became Paul Nichols, who was an actor. Well, has he been in anything good? He, he was a lot, in quite a few things in like the 80s, yeah. Oh, okay. But uh, Paul, the other Paul Dean, the Canadian guitarist, was very famous in the 80s. Oh, wow, okay. I, I did see that video with, yes. with yes, the Canadian Paul that. Dean. Mm. And it was something. The other clarification I think we should make is that we don't have a review of one of the games that we're going to... We said we were going to review this week. Uh, that would be Hablomachus Remastered. Uh, there are two explanations for why that happened. Elaine, would you like me to give the cool explanation or the one that's actually true? I would like you to give the true one. The true one is that we simply ran out of time and Hablomachus Remastered needs a bit more attention. So we're going to have a review of it. Uh, not in the next episode, because actually uh, because of scheduling issues... That can't work out. So sometime in the future, we're pushing that back. Uh, but you want to hear the cool explanation, Elaine? Yeah. No. Do I? Yeah, come on. Oh, is this the invented one? It's not invented. It's true. Go it's on the then. cool Go on explanation. Then. We realized, so after a listener wrote in and said, hey, uh, 
you know, what abstract games do you like? And, mm. and you so eloquently put, I bleeping love abstract mm-hmm. games, right? We decided that we want to play more abstract games. So if we bumped Hoplomachus Remastered to another episode, we would have free abstract games in this one episode. It's the abstract game special, plus Paul Dean, who's... <laughs> Also abstract? I don't know. He is now. Just a little note also about the bonus Patreon episode. I did want to let people know that that's now a thing going forward where you, if you are a patron, there's an exclusive patron RSS feed. If you don't know, if you are a patron and you don't know how to access that RSS feed and add it to your podcast devices, uh, there's some help guides on patreon itself just click on help you can find instructions on how to do that we've also got a post on patreon right now live that sort of explains how you do that as well so you don't just have to listen it listen to it on the patreon website you can actually add it to your phone or wherever you listen to podcasts on but more to the point what's on the bonus episode well this week like elaine mentioned we have more of paul dean the second part of that interview but also we're going to talk about our very first impressions not a review first impressions uh just just sort of how it went and how how, what we felt and uh what happened in our game of hegemony lead you class to victory which i hear is a hot ticket item if you want to Get your hands on that and more bonus episodes as we go forward. Go to patreon.com slash no pun included. First of all, let's go through some of the thoughts you've had regarding the games we spoke about in the last podcast. On Great Western Trail, Lizard King says... I think I'm reasonably broadly educated board gamer, but whatever it is that makes me bad at grasping a certain combination of things, i.e. Gaia Project, is multiplied tenfold in Great Western Trail. I tried across multiple plays in real life and BGA, and it just wasn't coherent to me. The overall panorama of possibilities was too much work to manage. Long way of saying, I think it is definitely one you have to scaffold up to. It's very hard for me to respond to this because I've made the point twice that Great Western Trail is very good at onboarding you and showing you its strategies. But again, not every person is the same. Not every person approaches games the same and not everyone's brain tackles puzzles in the same way. So there is always going to be a difference in that regard between people. I think it's still for most good at at onboarding itself and showing you what it wants you to do. But also I think what matters is how you want to play Great Western Trail. If you want to play it very competitively and strategically, yeah, not everyone immediately clicks with it in that way because I think from my experience with it, especially playing with more competitive-minded players... I was shown very quickly, like, oh, there's levels and layers to the strategy in this game that I didn't, I've never even seen. And and I think if I aimed for that, I would maybe feel the same way. And Latro says, for me, in Great Western Trail, I know what I should be doing. I just can't do it all or can't do it as well as people that know how to do it. Gaia Project and before that Terra Mystica, I'm absolutely not grokking the game at all, but yes, I know the feeling. Well, that followed on very nicely, didn't it? Sort of sort of uh, elaborated on my point. I don't think I really need to add anything to that at all. On Star Wars The Deck Building Game, Jeep says, 
My guess is the goal of Star Wars the deck building game is just to be an affordable, solid, inoffensive entry point and the mechanical innovation is eventually going to be arriving in the form of expansions. I can't find anywhere online that an expansion was announced, but it seems consistent with the FFG approach. Yeah, much lesser games from FFG have gotten expansions. But then again, uh, in, in the latter day FFG we don't really know what's going to happen, whether they're going to be expansions or not going to be expansions. They seem to be supporting Descent Legends of the Dark with a new expansion. But again, that seems to be a complete pivot from what the original game was, uh, which was once again a pivot from the previous edition. So who knows? Maybe there will be an expansion. Maybe there won't be. And yes, Star Wars the deck building game is very inoffensive. And I think that's probably the best thing I can say about it. And lastly, brace your bonnets because there was a lot of discussion on those nymph Kickstarter minis. We actually had an email from the designer Martin. I won't read the whole thing because it'll take up the whole podcast, but here's an excerpt. We set out to create something that was artistic and that called back to the ancient Greek roots of the AT setting. And we did not feel nudity or partial nudity was inherently wrong or exploitative. We took care to not show idealised bodies, so the line goes through the whole spectrum with plus-size bodybuilder physiques, breastfeeding, pregnancy, even showing transsexuality. We also wrote stories for this characters, not exploitative adventures, but small pieces showing powerful entities to be admired, humbled by or feared, not gawked at. The Kickstarter scroll shows the illustrations as we've unveiled them. Because, and this is certainly true, we did not know how we would be received, how far we could go with the concept. I imagine if the line went on, it would have become even more diverse. So one of the things I want to address is that actually something you haven't read out from that email. Uh, and I did want to touch a little bit on how we talked about Aaron Trespass' story, basically saying that uh, in the last episode, we mentioned that the progressive elements of the narrative that they've alluded to in their correspondence to us, uh, we didn't see any of them. But we, we weren't saying we were supposed to. We we were pretty clear that this is just the first impressions. And, uh, you know, we haven't seen it initially, but fully expected to see it later. So that wasn't an expectation that we had. We simply wanted to mention that, you know, we we haven't seen any of that, but we're not saying it's not there. And with that, I do want to say... I'm not saying that whatever the goals of Into the Unknown, the publishing studio mm -hmm. responsible for Aeon Trespass are, I'm not saying that they're not being progressive or whatever, that that's not their intention. But I don't think there's anything progressive about the NIMS Kickstarter, certainly. And I, I don't think that was there was much really that overtly progressive about uh, the character models, uh, because I do think they are, I, I guess that's for like every person to decide. But I do think they are hypersexualized, and I do think they are male gays. And also, and some of the other stuff, in terms of representation, I didn't pick up that one of the characters was uh, trans. I don't, I don't believe the term they used in the email is correct. No. Uh, no. no, it's not. Okay. Uh, so I, I don't think that's a term that's favored by the trans community. Uh, so I wouldn't use that per se. I didn't pick up that one of the characters was trans. And I think that that says something that that it's not really overtly showing the progressiveness. You know, it's it's good of you to say that your intentions are to be progressive. And I'm not denying that they are. 
right? I am saying that just from that Kickstarter, it's it's not very evident, you know, and the old axiom of actions instead of words, yes. I think, is is very important here. And again, I'm not saying that those actions aren't there. We just haven't seen any evidence of them yet. And the other thing I did want to mention, after having another look at that NIMS Kickstarter, one thing that really struck me out is that some of the figures that do show body positivity, or at least a modicum of body positivity, I think there's a spectrum in what that is. And and, and it, lo- it falls pretty low on that spectrum because the hypersexualization really sort of glosses over that. Uh, but for me, one of the things that stuck out was that one of the models who was not a conventional size model uh, was called a sweets nymph, as in someone who <laughs> likes to eat candy. And that personally really didn't jive well with me for what I think are obvious reasons. I guess good on you for having intentions. I think some work needs to be done in 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 making those intentions overt and evident because you know there's one thing to say oh yes we're being progressive but but if people can't see that um then that's not really good enough uh and again that's in some ways that's you know i'm I'm being very critical of someone who's at least trying which is more than a lot of board game publishers do so kudos to into the unknown for that but if you are staunchly reiterating that you are very progressive, it would be good if you didn't neglect to find the right terminology for things. Did we have any audience correspondence we about did. that? We did. Okay. We did. Emma Plays Green says, I've been slowly getting into miniature painting over the last few years. And one of the major barriers for me is the distinct lack of non-hypersexualized female minis to paint. There's nothing wrong with women looking realistically sexy some of the time, but it would also be great to have women represented when they're just getting on with life, you know? Lean, wiry women or stocky, plumper women can also look sexy. Plus, sexy doesn't have to mean acres of bare flesh. And Jamson says, That nymph Kickstarter was certifiably misogynistic, reinforced negative stereotypes and was downright creepy. It's like when someone tells you your neighbour is always going around naked. When you look, when I looked up the site... It's your own damn fault, I suppose. I think I'm just going to leave it there. I don't need to add (laughs) anything to that. One last correspondence that actually we're not going to read out uh, because uh, the person who sent that in asked to be anonymous, uh, but they wanted to pick me up on uh, a term that I and many, many, many in the board game industry use. uh, And that term, I'm going to say the last time now, that term is colorblindness. The correct term being color vision difference, or CVD for short. And there's apparently some debate whether it should be color vision difference or color vision deficiency. Uh, I'm not an expert on the subject. I I did do a little bit of reading, and it does seem that the term colorblindness isn't really appropriate anymore because uh, of a number of issues, Uh, one of them conflating blindness with something that isn't blindness, uh, and and misrepresenting what the condition actually is. Uh, so I wanted to not only correct my behavior, but actually address that publicly, because I know people listen to us, and, uh, and some people who are also professionals in the industry listen to us. Uh, and I wanted to say, just as a kind of a public service announcement to everyone, maybe let's not use the CB term again, 
and go to CBD instead. If you want to write in, you can email us, elaine at nopunincluded.com. Our first game is Wine, the film that comes from publisher Sashi and Sashi, designer Sashi and illustration by Takako Takari, and graphic design by Sashi and Sashi. That's a lot of Sashis. <laughs> yes, I, I, blah, blah, blah. there's too many Sashis to read out. I would just like to add that uh, if you're on the lookout for this game in uh, America or Europe, it is more likely that you're going to find it by the title Photograph, uh, published by publisher Matago, but it is effectively the same game. So this has been around for a while, and it's, it's one of those games that you sort of hear whispers on in the background, you know, oh, have you heard of Wine the Film? It's really, <laughs> really good. So I've had a copy kicking around in my calyx also for quite a while. It just never gotten to it. And and since we needed a replacement for Hoplomachus Remastered and something that was abstract, we dug it out. And it's really good, isn't it? It's, yes. It's, it is, as everyone says, really good. There are a couple of things about it that are, it just lacks a little bit of that polish, I think, sometimes. But maybe that'll come through with more plays. So what Wind the Film is, is an abstract card game for two, three, or four players, I believe? Yes. Yes. And we only played it as a two-player game, but it plays perfectly. Because there are only two of us. I think there's more people in the world, though. Oh. Elaine. Yeah. It is a game that plays pretty well at two, so I feel like we got a pretty accurate representation of what the game is i think with more players we just have a a little bit more of a um dynamic field in terms of what cards we get to take but the game is pretty much the same across player counts so what do you do in wine the film well thematically you take photographs and otherwise it's a pretty abstract game of managing your hand of cards and in that sense it's not just managing about what cards you have in your hand, but also what order the cards are in, because the cards somehow thematically represent film, as in film in a photo camera, as in back in the days when photo cameras had film in them. Uh, and and as as they slide through your hand, they get closer to being played, which doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But every time you get to do this action called wind the film, where apparently you're winding the film, but you just take one card from anywhere in your hand and put it in a different place. And and, and that's winding the film, right? It's, it's nonsensical, but it is cute, right? Uh, but the trick here is, is that basically what you're trying to do is you're trying to collect sets of different cards, uh, in different colors. So there are uh, seven different colors in the game, uh, but you will only be playing with five uh, if you're playing a two-player game. And you're trying to have a spread of, like, a little bit of all of the cards in different colors, but also you're trying to get more in one color, uh, because the more you have in one, the more points you're going to get at the end of the game. Uh, but if you don't have certain color colors represented, you'll get a points penalty. So it's, it's like a tug of war where you're like ideally you want lots of photos in each color yes the trouble is is that you have to play these cards sequentially and uh so for example if you played an eight uh, then you have to play either a nine ten 
11, 12, or 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, right? Mm. So uh, your starting card pretty much determines what your range is. And then the second card that you play determines which way you're going to go in that range. So if you start with something like a 1, which is the lowest card, or a 12, which is the highest card, you're great because, you know, you can go all the way down or all the way up. But if you start with an 8, you're like, I'm right in the middle. It's not very convenient. Um, but there are there are advantages to even doing that because the way you take cards is that they're on the middle of the table in a sort of in a tableau. But but some of the cards are face up and some of the cards are face down. Uh, but the cards that are face down, you get to see their color and you get to see whether they're between one and six or seven, seven and 12. twelve, right? So there's immediately this sort of like, oh, okay right? Like, I could really chance it, and this could be the, exactly the card that I need, because let's say you have, like, an eight on the table, right? And you, you're you going up, right? So you need, like, a nine, ten, eleven, twelve. But you can only play a card, anyway, that is between one and three higher or lower than the one, the last one you've put down. Yes, so you, you don't want the card to be too much higher than the one that you've played, but also you don't want it to be too much lower and and the, the weird little thing is like that point of like pushing your luck is that again if if you have an a and you're going up and on the table you can see that the next card is face down the right color but seven to twelve you could try and chance and take that because it could be a nine ten eleven twelve right or it could be a seven and an eight right in which case if you're forced to play those cards, and you're forced to play pretty much every card you take, there's one card at the end of the game that you don't have to play. That's it. Every other card you take, you will have to play. Sometimes when you don't want to. It's a one in three chance that you're just taking negative points, right? So there's there's this emergent sense of danger anytime <laughs> you're taking a card. And here's the, here's the real trick, right? The game says you can take between one and three cards, mm -hmm. no matter how many you want, right? Like it, it, any any amount is fine. But however many you take is however many you, you must play. play them. Yeah, and and the way the way that they're arranged in your hand, so the cards that you take always go to the front of the film, and the cards that you play always come from the back of the film. So there, it's like a conveyor belt of cards in your hand, <laughs> and that's why you get to wind the film because you can take one card from the back and move it anywhere to the front and and it sort of gives you that saving grace moment of like if if your cards aren't in perfect order you get to rearrange them but even that rearranging feels painful because sometimes it doesn't even help you sometimes it hinders you if 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 you constructed this bizarre clunky hand that doesn't really go anywhere because you pushed your luck too far um what did you think yeah i ruined myself with that wind the film action because uh, I I moved, I thought I was being really clever and I moved a card and then I realised I'd ruined myself for a different colour instead uh, after doing that. So, uh, no, I really liked it. I thought it, I thought it was quite um, thematic for an abstract game because you're, you're winding the film. You can only move cards forward like you're winding a film 
forward, yeah, you no, can't I, move I them it. backwards. Yeah, yeah. You can pretend to make up little stories about what your cards look like in the end, like what your tableau ends up looking like, what your film, what what pictures you've taken and why. And we had we had a little bit of fun with that. Uh, you you say that, but you were you were at the end of the game. You were telling me all these stories about oh yeah, and then these people did that, and then they <laughs> went there and they got a turtle, and you know something happened. There is a turtle card, yeah, yeah. and, On and a leash. All, all my stories were like so. Uh, okay, my story is this person goes to a fancy department store. Well, that's yeah. it. That's the end of the story. Or the second story: a bunch of people have coffee. This is why you don't like Rory's story cubes because <laughs> you're like, oh, foot L plate, what? I don't care what. <laughs> I'm just saying, I like it didn't spark my imagination. The the artwork is adorable. I mm-hmm. love it. Mm-hmm. Right? Like I've got no qualms with the artwork and i don't really have any qualms with with the theming of the game i think it's actually for an abstract game you're right it's quite nice because it doesn't try to pretend to be more than it is more on that later yeah, in the episode i liked as well if you can't play a card then you have to put it uh, face down uh, and it it's a duff shot it's like a out of focus shot yeah uh, and it's negative points because you've ruined a piece of your film. And we've taken enough of those in our life to know that it, well, how I, much it hurts. I mean, I I was terrible with film cameras. Like I I like digital cameras were like the best thing for me when they came out because and and I I used to use one at school. Uh, I used to take pictures for for school. Um, and it had a full-size floppy disk in it as the like memory card for the, the first digital camera. But no, I was terrible. I, I remember I took a film camera on a school trip. I brought it back, excited to see what I'd taken, and the back of the camera was open. There was not even any film in it. <laughs> like The film had fallen out somewhere around the zoo or wherever I'd gone. So, no, I was bad at that. My very first digital camera was Canon 350D. Uh, mm-hmm. called Canon Rebel something in Europe. So there were d- different different brandings. But I remember I got that camera to try and learn photography. And I eventually got around to learning photography. I remember like reading tutorials and all of that. And then we, we went to Scotland together. Mm-hmm. And I was like trying to apply what I've learned, like taking non- water reflective shots of ducks and stuff like that with a what was it it was a polarizer or something like that you have to do that i don't even remember (laughs) i call myself a filmmaker i'm not a filmmaker i'm a reviewer but i just happened to do it with a camera you have an interest in film yeah i have an interest in film right and i remember taking this really cool shot of a bird that was framed by this coniferous foliage around it and it was it was framed so well but because it's a bird and birds tend to fly away, the only one I managed to get, it was like on sports mode or something like that. <laughs> like the bird is so clearly out of focus. And I still have that. I still have that picture because I love it so much because the colors on it came out so naturally. It looked so good. Everything about that shot was perfect. Mm-hmm. Apart from it was out of focus and it frustrates me so much i'm a product of my time i realize this but i don't know how i would cope without having a camera now like literally i've i've written you know stuff on the on the board in the kitchen for like our shopping list i take a photo of it and 
like sit there doing like for the shopping list right yeah. right so i, I don't I, it, it would be a mess otherwise i i don't know how i would do it so but back to the game because uh, i think we've got yes. on a small tangent there <laughs> yes. we're reminiscing about <laughs> film cameras, cameras. And stuff. Yeah. uh yeah i really enjoyed it um i think i enjoyed it a bit more than you there were a couple of moments that were just felt odd in you terms felt a of bit timing. In yeah, at times uh, not because of the constraints of the hand management and stuff, but there's a couple of game triggers. There's the sunset trigger, mm-hmm. like there's basically saying, "Hey, there's about you know like less than one third of the game left, mm. right?" And and it's it it comes on a bit abrupt, but that's fine. But the the game end trigger itself. Uh, so what happens? You have a you have twelve cards on the board, uh, and then each time there's three or less, mm-hmm. you do a reshuffle and you take away the cards and you populate in a two player game. In yeah. a two player game, you populate the board again, right, with twelve cards. And sometimes the game can end on a reshuffle. So you're like you're looking at the deck and you're like, oh, there's still cards left. There's probably going to be one more reshuffle. So you know you're banking on taking this or that and you know you're kind of making your decisions on that and then you know the reshuffle trigger triggers and then you deal out those 12 cards and oh there's only two left now so that means the game ends immediately mm. what like and that happened more than once in our games mm-hmm. and I-, I found that to be very anticlimactic and frustrating and i don't know if that's to do with lack of experience or you know this or that or the other but it, it did happen in, in a number of games, and I'm like, this, I, I don't like how the I, game ends. I think what's difficult is that you know that the game is coming to an end because you've already gone through the sunset phase, so you know there's not that many cards there, but you're not really supposed to be like looking through how many cards there are mm-hmm. left in that deck because, like you said, each back of the card shows you the colours that are going to be coming out and, yeah. and a range of, of numbers that it might be. So you're not really supposed to be kind of root, rooting through that, seeing what's left. But you need to. You need to know how many cards are in that deck yeah, because, you, because you need to know when the game is going to... And the first time uh, we played it, I thought there were more cards in it and we carried on playing. And went, then I went, oh, wait, no, there's not. The game should have ended by now. Yeah. And it was it was a little bit weird, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's clunky in that regard. Mm. And I, I don't love that part of the game. I wish that the deck was constructed in a way or you know where you you get to play out that last reshuffle you know and the game doesn't just end immediately um because otherwise it's just really frustrating but i think it's probably to do with the maths and whatever because it is an abstract Mm -hmm. effectively Mm -hmm. it probably just has to be that way uh which is kind of frustrating and a little bit disappointing but otherwise i loved it it's very very clever i i don't want that point to undermine how fun and painstaking it is to try to constantly rearrange that hand and conveyor belt these cards into like sequences that feel right and that because when when you do land it right you're like ha i'm gonna take three (laughs) cards and i'm gonna play these three cards and they're gonna like boom 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 all everything in its right place and and it feels really good give me a good shot card now oh yeah and we forgot (laughs) to mention there's good shots as well if you collect more of one there's like a good shot bonus which I really like thematically because it's like, yeah, I've taken some good <laughs> pictures. Nice. Still to come, we have Koi Koi as well as an interview with Britain's favourite export, Paul Dean, and we'll be reading out correspondence from some of you. But first, we have 
Murder on the chessboard. That Time You Killed Me is a review copy that comes from publisher Pandasaurus Games by designer Peter C. Hayward and artist Jaw Ross. Well, it's now that time later in the episode where we're going to talk about a game that really works too hard in terms of theming. Uh, because what That Time You Killed Me is, which you're really not going to get from the title, is checkers. But with a twist. So thematically, one of you, it's a two-player game, one of you invented time travel and the other one is trying to kill you. But which one is which? It doesn't matter because it's black and white checkers. Um, So I, I don't want to undermine some of the really, really amazing art mm. uh, in that time you killed me. And, and some of the witty writing in the rule book in terms of trying to... Elaine's <laughs> shaking her face. I, I dislike whimsy in a rule book. Okay. Well, that aside, you know, there, there's, you know, some, some work went in to theming this game. But overall, when your game is checkers with a twist and you're promising time travel and you know, assassinations and all of that. Makes it sound a lot more exciting than it was. <laughs> it, it really it really set it up for something that didn't feel as cool, nowhere near as cool as it should have. So as you m- might have guessed from my mention of time travel, the, the twist is checkers with time travel, where you have three boards, one representing the past, the other the present, and of course the future, And each of these boards are square grids, uh, like a checkerboard, that are four by four grids. So each grid has 16 spaces. And you might be like, wait a minute, that's a lot less than a checkerboard that's much more smaller and condensed. And you'd be right, because you don't have as many pawns as you have in checkers. You have one on each board, but with the potential to get four more through the course of the game. uh, Because when you travel from the future to the past or the present, you you leave a clone of yourself in the future or the present, but then when they go to the past, there's another point. Anyway, um, so, so, so the twist is that each turn you can only move on one board, mm-hmm. uh, which is your active board. So let's say uh, my active board is the past board, so I can, I can do two actions with my pawn in that board and when i say actions i mean move my pawn um there's slightly more that you can do and i'll get to that later when it comes to the modules of the game but it is effectively move your pawn is the action right so you can move it twice um and then you have to designate one of the other two boards as your active board so your opponent when they take their turn they know where you're going to be acting and whether it's so if you've been acting in the past you you know you'll be in the present or the future, and your opponent will know where you're going, and then they can make their decisions based on that. So, so far, so fine, right? Uh, but of course, the twist is time travel, so some of the things you do in certain boards affects other boards in, in, in multiple ways. So one of them is time travel, where like in the, let, let's say you're in the future, you can take your pawn to the past, and then uh, it'll leave another pawn in the future where it was, But also the twist is that at any time you can only move one pawn. So if your pawn moves from the future to the present, 
and still has one action, it's the pawn in the present that continues to move. Anyway, it's convoluted like that because, hey, guess what? Time travel is convoluted. That's that's also part of the twist. And um, then there's... Okay, so here's where it gets funky. There are four modules. We're only going to talk about module one because technically the other modules are in spoilerific boxes. I'm going to discuss the concept of that a little bit later, but but we're only going to touch on module one, uh, even though we had experience with a bit more. Not much more, because this is a spoiler for this review. <laughs> the game frustrated me to no end, and not just me. Um, so module one is trees, where in the past, if you plant a seed, you put a <laughs> seed on the board, it will go into a shrub in the present and then a tree in the future. And one of the things you can do is you can collapse the tree onto your opponent's pawn. And that's kind of the goal of, of each game. You're trying to eliminate the enemy pawns. Because once a pawn goes off, it's removed from the game. So even though you can place more pawns... It's like, like chess. You capture the pawn, you keep that pawn. Yeah, right? exactly, right? And, and that's why you're limited in pawns. And, and here's the difference between, you know, like the past and and the future for example so one player always starts in the past one the other starts in the future if you start in the past you get first go right if you start in the future you get like you get to put out more pawns maybe if you want to risk doing that um and 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 that's sort of the difference and and then the modules add like you know elements to the board effectively i'm not going to spoil the others but you know one of the elements is like i said planting a tree this tree grows you can push the tree onto someone you know it's a different way shrub you can, will kill you yeah shrub will kill you the different different ways you can interact with with these pawns and eliminate them my problem with the game and i recognize that that may be something that changes with experience or whatever is that it didn't do enough that is different or better than checkers uh which i don't rate very highly as a game uh to differentiate itself and warrant all this thematic elaboration because a lot of the times when we played uh we've we've ran into the checkers problem which is like you don't want to seed ground so you keep going in a loop because because you've created a loop where it's advantageous to move back and forward and obviously checkers has a rule for that mm. Uh, to to stop that from happening, you can't you can't cycle moves, right? There is no such rule, or at least I wasn't aware. Maybe 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 it is in the rulebook and we missed it. But there is there is no move that prevents you from cycling moves back and forth between you and your opponent. Because as soon as someone breaks that cycle, they seed ground, and and they're at a disadvantage because they start losing pawns. And, and so what's always in your best interest, because the way you eliminate a pawn is you push it into a wall because it's a really contained space, is to be in the center and push your opponent out of the center. So you very quickly get into matches of, I push you, you push me, I push you, you push me, I push you, you push me. And you cycle between two different areas because you can't do the same, you know, you can't do the same area in a row twice. And there are things to break that up, like time travel. But oftentimes we found ourselves when one person decided to break out of the loop and like 
do time travel and like put more pawns down or something they they effectively just disadvantage themselves because they created an opportunity for the other person to take advantage of you breaking that loop and go haha you lose a pawn and and that's just not good and and then we tried more modules and we found that the same thing happens uh it's just different flavor of elements on the board but but the problem remains the same and maybe that's something fundamentally that we've missed in this game mm. i don't know I, I'm, I'm not saying that you know like we have enough experience to sort of judge it on that merit we're simply talking about kind of our impressions of our plays which i think at least left me unsatisfied what about you were you satisfied i found this game disappointing uh because it looked like it was going to be a lot of fun. I like abstract games. I like chess. I like checkers. Um, and it looked like with all these different modules, uh, it was going to do something really interesting. And it didn't. And we played through a couple of them. Uh, and I wonder if they do get better. Uh, but we didn't want to find out. No. Because I... we were bored. Yeah. Um, and and it it was really disappointing Downing because, with because praise there. all the way through the rule book, there's these. I, I know I said I I don't like whimsy in a rule book, but all the way through these rule books, uh, there's there's like little paragraphs of you know flavor text yeah. of who you are and what you're doing and is it going to be you that gets murdered? Is it are you going to murder them? Is it blah, 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 whatever? And it even comes with this like little letter. That you ha that you should read before you play. That says you know who you are and what the premise of this whole thing is. That you're time traveling and and it just looked like it was going to be fun. And it wasn't. And it was just we just ended up going around in circles with it. Yeah. Um. And and that's why it was disappointing. I don't think there's much more to say about it. I think if you really like checkers and you want time travel in it. And that's your expectation. I think you're probably going to have fun with it. I, I, I don't know. I disagree with that statement because... Do you checkers, think checkers is more fun? Checkers and chess both have certain rules of how you move pieces and mm. what happens to them. And if you get your checker piece to the other end, it gets like kinged or, or yeah, crowned yeah. or whatever it's called. Uh, you know, things happen. Yeah. And you don't end up going around in circles. Um, I, th I think the other problem with it is that the time travel didn't add that much of a twist to it. Like it felt like it would be a twist, but because, you know, you uh, what you do on one board state affects the other, right? Yeah. But it never felt that interesting. Like there were times where we engineered clever moves, like, mm. ah, ha, ha, you didn't expect me to plant a tree. Suddenly a tree has grown <laughs> on you, it falls, right? Yeah. And you're like, oh, I can't do anything to stop that. And there's that funky moment of like, you know, because you do it in one action and then you kind of, you put your focus piece like on the board where you're going to execute the kill and your opponent sees that, right? But if their pawn, if their focus it, like marker is not already on that. They're like, oh, okay, I can't do anything about that anymore. That's it. I have to just watch that happen. And 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 that's kind of like a fun moment in the game. But I think it, it didn't it didn't engender itself to these moments really well. Like they happen, but then they happen and it's like a one-trick pony, right? Mm. It's like, oh, okay. 
So, so that's the thing. And then what you do most of the game is try to avoid those moments because, you know, like you don't want that to happen. So it, mm. it, it doesn't, it's a game that feels like it doesn't increase its variability. It feels like it has a cool trick. The trick happens and you're like, uh, okay. If you could engineer it so that you could move into a certain position uh, with one of your timepieces and then build a tree in the past mm -hmm. so that then you could push the tree over with the other timepiece that's in the future. So you could kind of engineer something. Um, but I never managed to do that. And I don't know if it's just that I'm not the right person to play this game. Mm. I, I, I don't want to say that it's a bad game, um, but I don't think I'm the right person to play this game and have fun with it. Well, I guess that's all we have to say. We did not have fun with it. Maybe you did. If you did, write in. If you have any comments, questions or anything else, you can get in touch with us, Elaine at nopunincluded.com. Coming up is some more of what you've been saying and Koi Koi, but first our interview with internationally published child poet and bear aficionado Paul Dean. Just before we begin that interview, a pre-recorded interview, I would like to say that a couple of things. Uh, first of all, there's uh, and mention Paul mentions Klaus Teuber uh, in the interview. Uh, this was recorded before the unfortunate news that uh, Klaus Teuber, the designer of Catan or Settlers of Catan, as it was then known, has passed away. And of course, our biggest condolences uh, uh, to Klaus's family. Uh, Catan, I think, changed many people's lives and like uh, like for many, for us too. Catan was a very first board game and uh, gateway into the hobby. Um, if if you want to hear some more, there's some smarter and more profound words. There, there was a fantastic uh, eulogy written uh, by Dan Thoreau of spacebiff.com. Uh, I would recommend giving that a read. Uh, also, Paul's uh, interview sadly has been uh, audio sabotaged where uh, the main audio file of his part of the dialogue uh, sadly got corrupted and uh, we only have the backup audio so it's not really very crisp or ideal audio but I think it's perfectly fine and I think Paul has some very interesting things to say so without me bedragging this further on uh, on with the interview. Delighted to welcome to the show, Paul Dean. Uh, many of you listening will be familiar with Paul as a founding member of the groundbreaking board game review show, Shut Up and Sit Down. Nowadays, Paul is known for writing on role-playing games, such as the latest edition of Paranoia, Feng Shui, Zephyr, and Magical Kitties Save the Day. Paul is also, also part of the team working on the video game Pacific Drive, where you drive a station wagon in something called the Olympic Exclusion Zone. And it has many on the internet abuzz. Paul, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Uh, I'm I'm good. I'm fine. I'm good. I we've been talking for 45 minutes before this even began. Do you want to know? I saw a really good picture of a guinea pig just now, so that I'm I'm in a good mood. What kind of a guinea pig was it? It was it was okay. So it was clearly like someone had. I'm gonna actually hold on. I've got it open in a tab. I'll just send it to you now, um, and then you can put it in the show notes so people know. The, you know, I didn't make this up. So just just for the people at home, I am now seeing a black and white guinea pig with whiskers uh, in a completely white background, uh, 
being placed, not be, it is placed already in front of a little red hard pillow. So it is adorable. I can confirm that. It is definitely very adorable. Is it making me feel good? Maybe a little bit, yes. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing good. How are you? I am great, Paul. Thank you very much. Uh, so, Paul. Yes. Uh, you have done the unthinkable. Uh, I think many in our audience can relate to the sensation of, hey, wouldn't it be fun to one day work on board games, with board games, get somehow professionally involved in board games. Now, you, you did that for quite a long time, and, yeah. and, the, and then you left. Um, yeah. so, so you're no longer, right now, as we're speaking, right now, you are not in the board game world professionally, correct? No, not really, no. Um, I mean, I guess we can... There's weird, there's weird Venn diagrams in all of games where, um, you know, increasingly in the world that we live in now, like we, most people would probably define like tabletop role playing as not being board games. Same as uh, if you play a app game on your iPad or your tablet or your phone, that's not really a board game unless it is an app of a board game, in which case you are or you are not playing a board game, but whatever the case, it is worth having a, like a very inflammatory argument about <laughs> over the internet. So sort of, uh, I don't know, I'm, I guess I'm tangential in some ways to things, but I, the role-playing stuff that I've done hasn't been really board gamey. I mm. did do a couple of board game related features or like at least one for Vice a couple of years ago where I interviewed uh the creator of settlers of Catan, klaus mm -hmm. teuber tuba um but that was i i don't know that was adjacent to where that was sort of board game related um i'm definitely like at a distance and happy to be at a distance uh and being at a distance in a way that i sort of like and feel comfortable with if that makes sense yeah it does make sense can you tell me more about that like transition how how does that feel like because how does that feel um in some ways you know i i think it's fair to say that board games have been a pretty big part of your life and and in a way distancing yourself does leave a sort of gap is there anything that fills that that's a really good question because they have been and when i was trying to i have done uh like I've done a few different things in my life and one of them is loads and loads of games journalism. And um, that's included like doing lots of interviews and features. Uh, and usually I prep for those by researching the topic and the subject for a while beforehand and trying to ask people questions that they've never been asked before. Cause the amazing thing that happens still in a lot of media and journalism um, is people just ask the same stuff all the time, which is stuff they could just yeah, increasingly with the internet find answers to quite easily. Um, I'm still, I still don't feel very good at prepping to be interviewed because that's uh, the other side of the thing. But for this, I was like, I will try and think about some things that I might say, or I might get asked or that might be useful to say. And it, I fell down this, retroactive or this retro kind of whole of board games and when they have or haven't been significant to me and they were significant to me in some gay some some ways growing up um because they gave my me my first opportunities to be a game designer or like try being at like an app you know as a 9 10 11 12 year old to make stuff and try things and uh the first ways that i ever did that was with the 
bits of board game that I had, trying to repurpose them and reuse them in new ways. Um, and obviously, I'm known on the internet for doing lots of board game criticism or occasionally doing talks or panels about it. Um, and then, like I say, tabletop RPGs are kind of adjacent to that. And some people know me just from that side of stuff, uh, particularly because Paranoia was... Paranoia is like a relatively big TTRPG and not so much now because time has passed, but when the Kickstarter for that happened, that was the biggest Kickstarter that the UK had ever seen Mm -hmm. Uh, to the point. I don't think the publisher was remotely prepared for sort of how big it would get, (laughs) but that was, that was also huge. And that was also a big project to leap onto as my first ever tabletop RPG sort of design experience. It was really in at the deep end. There have been a few ways, I guess, board games have been significant to me in my life. But you uh, or NPI and you made the really good, I have reviewed board games for, what was it, seven years or something video a little while ago? Well, it would have been eight because it's nine now. Okay, maybe it was, yeah, because it was mm. a bit more, it was like last summer or yeah, last I think spring? So. It was last spring, yeah. And one of the things you said in that was like, yeah, board games are a part of my life. But I mean, I uh, also, I've spent, I was first published when I was like about 11. I was published in a children's poetry collection. And for a while I did a bunch of poetry is weird, but I did like some poems at school and my teachers were like, this is really good. You should do more. And then they put some of them in in like books and they got published and they're like, this is great. You're amazing. And I got really bored of it really quickly and I didn't enjoy it. And it affected actually how I felt about poetry a lot but like board games are like part of what i do like you said in that video board games are a thing that i do like but i like a lot of other stuff and i like writing um i studied philosophy at university but i nearly studied film because for a while i thought i might want to do screenwriting or i just like film and though i did loads of games journalism and i wrote particularly when i was younger in my early 20s i was in magazines like pc format and pc gamer and stuff like that when Mm. when the physical copies were still selling like a hundred thousand copies nationally in the uk like they used to be really big physical sellers every month before the internet sort of overlapped that and um i never got into it but i always wanted to do that for film magazines as well i just like film and increasingly tv and the visual medium and uh that's a thing that i get excited about and i like to hear people talk about i like travel and i like writing about travel and i particularly like north america and going places in north america and meeting people and i have what the first ever job i had when i worked at a hardware store a place called b&q in england when i was 16 years old i thought that when you got a job that you joined a union so i went to this place i was like okay how do i join the union and they didn't have a union and i have also been like a lifelong kind of left-leaning person who has various opinions about labor and representation and people and that's a part of me and part of my identity Mm -hmm. um so board games is but it's also you know if you had if you put if i was a pizza um and i turned up and I'm, you open the box and you're like, there's Paul, he's hot, he's covered in toppings. There'd be like 12 slices or maybe, I don't know, 20. Or, and it would be a mm. slice of the pizza, though. And that's almost part of the reason why it's easy to step away and not think about it or not care about it as much because there's so many other things. And 
Um, one of the experiences that I sometimes had within a board game sphere was uh, board gaming is still kind of a very niche, very small thing, and it can be a bit intense or a bit... For some people, it's most of the pizza. Yeah. And I don't relate to that, and that's not my experience of like moving through the world. Mm. I'm not a board game pizza most of the time. I can definitely relate to that feeling, yeah. Do you... Um, you mentioned that um, when you were younger, you know, there, there were definitely some games that like captured your imagination, right? Yes. Um, is, is there anything that particularly sticks out? Is there is there a game that's like, because what I'm getting the sense of is that, and you can definitely tell this from your game criticism work, is that board games seem to be an outlet for creativity, right? And it's... Yeah less that you're filling the niche for board games and more that you're filling the niche for creativity. You're just finding different ways to express that. Yeah, maybe you're right. I didn't think about it that way. Is there something, do you remember like what initially captured that sort of creativity fire? There are, there's a couple of things from my before I was 10 era, which is like, it's a classic Paul era. It involves a lot of tracksuits and like, uh, haircuts that are not trendy um and honestly you know it, it, i don't entirely look like i wouldn't probably be entirely out of place if i was on the other side of the iron curtain at that time in my some of my fashion sense <laughs> and uh you know already liking even as a kid already liking things that were like 10 or 15 years out of date being i i bought into being terminally uncool like very early on uh but I've, I've talked before and I've written a bit before about how when Hero Quest came out, that was very significant. And I'll jump back to that in a minute. But there were actually a few different things that I loosely remember from that time, which is you grow up and you have like Cluedo or Monopoly around because lots of people do. Mm. But I have vague memories of playing a game that was about uh, running a business or running a company of some sort, and you have to, I, I'm afraid I can't remember the name, but you have to try and populate your board with like different vice presidents and CFOs and buy shares. And it was much too complicated for me. And I also thought there was something wrong with it because there didn't seem to be like, if you played with four players, there didn't seem to be enough people to populate all the different boards of all the different companies, which in retrospect, I look at that now and I'm like, no, the point is probably not everybody can win or, you know, yeah. you're trying to take away someone, something yeah. there's a resource scarcity. But I remember just finding that really interesting because it was so different to like snakes and ladders. And mm. I had like a Thomas, the tank engine board game, which when I was five years old was super cool because the trains could go down different tracks and go through different tunnels. And that was a bit more creative than snakes and ladders, but more creative even than monopoly, which is kind of, you know, pretty fixed in a lot of ways. Uh, and we used to have game days at school and it would usually be like the last day of the term. And my friend Stephen brought in this board game that I think actually I could probably Google this on. Let's open Board Game Geek in an incognito tab because otherwise uh, this this is a new PC and I don't want it to be sullied. And, uh, you know, there'll be some kind of a cookie somewhere and I'll get... 
I already get all kinds of stuff on my phone where it's like, hey, you looked at this thing once. You do, do you definitely want this? You definitely want this, don't you? And I'm like, absolutely not. But it's it's like, you know, the internet is like that uncle that kind of doesn't really know you. And then it's Christmas time and they're like, you like my little pony, right? I saw you with that once. Oh anyway, my God. there's this, you know what? Let's just board game M25. It might even be called M25. The M25, board game geek. Yeah, it's this game that is about trying to get around London. And the M25, for f- lots of folks won't know this, it's a large motorway or highway that sort of rings London and is a good way for people to get around the capital before they get into it. And it's notoriously very busy and being eternally maintained. Uh, and this is because of the fundamental problems caused by the popular modern conspiracy that is traffic, where we think that traffic is a solvable problem and that cars and roads. This is a whole other feeling I have about cars and roads and car culture. Yeah, uh, in, just- in uh, Neil Gaiman's and Derry Pratchett's Good Omens, uh, it was it was uh, a satirical comedy book. Uh, it was implied that it was designed by the devil. I mean, it, quite possibly, but this, I, I'm looking at it now and yeah, it's just a game called the M25 and somebody brought this in and it was just a different game about a different concept. And it's still a bit kind of roll and movie, but like things happened in the game and you did fun stuff and you could get caught in traffic and uh, you drew cards that um, challenge you to do a certain thing that would help you move around. And it was just different. And I was just like, board games can be different and lots can happen. And so when Hero Quest came along as well, and that was Dungeon Crawly, that was sort of almost the icing on a cake that was gradually baking. I think I can definitely relate to that in the sense of like uh, discovery of the new. And I think there is a lot that powers this industry. Uh, that sense powers this industry, you know, like it, people constantly want to find something new that board games deliver. But that can also lead to quite a consumerist hobby. Did, did you ever yeah. feel like that? The last, I feel like the last time I did a GDC talk about board games, we'd clocked it at more than, I. this still doesn't feel like true or real, but we'd clocked it at something like more than 3,000 new titles in a year. Mm. And that's 10 games a day. And that is too many games. Uh, And, you know, particularly when when you're going through life as a pizza that doesn't only want to be identified with games, but it's too much. I mean, it's it's that is a whole different side of things where it's both. Again, I feel like you express some of this really well in, in that same video I was talking about, which is. It's board games are not the only thing that's going on, but there is a particular intensity within a lot of board game areas, a lot of board game discussion. And I think you expressed it as like something comes out and people can have quite furious discussions about something and whether it is good or not uh, and how to respond to it and what to think about it. And within about 18 months, nobody cares about it nobody is playing it it's not mentioned again Mm. and the thing with um there's to some degree this can happen across all kinds of media and entertainment that something uh appears and is very intensely discussed and i think social media is a really powerful amplifier for this as well Mm -hmm. but 
there is a lot within other things that I care about or I'm interested in. There's a lot within uh, like literature and film where people actually jump back to something and they still have the same passionate debates or they still care about it or they reevaluate and they look at something. And it feels like things have, if people have feelings about something in some of these other mediums, there's, how can I say this? There's like, it feels like there's just more veracity to that or there's more genuine investment or like there's more substance to what people are digging into. Whereas in board games, it feels very, um, I don't know what the consequence of it is or what the value of it is all the time. And it can quickly get very tiring to see people get very passionate about certain details or certain ideas that I don't I can't connect with that. It's a little bit alienating. And particularly in like, I don't know, through much of my life, but, you know, through more closely focusing on board games since like the late, for me, the late 2000s, a lot of the same issues that people should care about, which is uh, how we how we treat people within the sphere and how we mm-hmm. represent people and how we talk to people and uh, if we want things to grow, how we get more people in, how we make people feel welcome and included and represented and safe and all of this, those should be the things that get like more more intensity and more passion and more sustained sort of investment of energy. And that doesn't seem to happen. And that is also a little, um, I don't know how to put it. It's also a little alienating and disappointing and kind of exhausting and you know, having that discussion a couple of times is difficult, but having it a lot, whether it's publicly or behind the scenes or whatever, it's just, you know, it, it after a while, it, it takes a toll and it, it feels a bit uh, tiring. But there's, yeah, there's definitely an element that is very consumerist. There's an element that moves very fast. Um, and then related to that as well, it's it's not the best analogy, but it, it reminds me a bit of like just fast fashion and fast fashion is a thing that you can be part of or you can participate in more if you have more money and more access and more if you are a certain kind of person. And I think this also affects the demographics of what some of the board game, especially the very dedicated hobbyist sphere of board gaming can be and who these folks are is uh the kind of background they have the kind of disposable income they have the kind of uh i don't know personal demographic that they are since this transition into into a different pizza state yes (laughs) has there been anything that that stood out to you as like a positive experience and that doesn't necessarily mean i don't necessarily mean that in a philosophical sense but more like have you had any good times with board games recently to simplify the question i think a lot of distance has made some things more enjoyable because i have uh not i have not missed the pace or intensity of a lot of things or also not miss the sensation of i i always this might probably sound very weird to a lot of people but i always felt actually always very outside of board games to some degree based partly on being like a European guy from England who now lives in Canada uh, in a scene that felt very American Mm. Uh, and also some of the income and the class sort of stuff. Um, So I've felt pivoting to some table tabletop RPG and video game stuff. I felt in spaces that have felt, I felt happy about being in broader spaces with more kinds of people. And that has been good. Um, And 
having other people bring board games to me that they are excited about and feeling that I don't have to have an opinion or a feeling about something or that I don't have to keep up with anything feels really good because that it's it's one of those things where you start to th- see things a bit fresh again through other people's eyes mm. and for me that's been particularly uh playing things that are social and often lighter and what we would call party games or social games or not really social deduction because that's not always a thing I like but maybe bluffing related things or like the the other day at a board game cafe uh the games I put aside were concept and cockroach poker and cockroach poker is you know about being sassy and cheeky and lying or telling the truth to people and concept is sort of uh visual charades mm-hmm. and both of those have a what i think is a really low barrier to entry and lots of room for personal expression and lots of room for you to make mistakes and also the very forgiving games um and that's something that i probably have missed a bit too much because there's also i i have lots of memories of playing games that are quite complex and quite involved and quite specific and um you know quite elaborate and even to even to go in the social deduction kind of direction like i have honestly very bad memories of playing blood on the clock tower once or twice and Mm. to me it was like this Lots, if lots of people like it, that's fine. But this game is too complex for me and mm-hmm. has too many different variables and is too good for people who... Everyone is different, but a lot of the people I know who like the game and like it the most are people who are good at lying and good mm-hmm. at crafting an image and being deceptive. And I've tried to distance myself from those types of people more as I've got older in life. Uh, and that doesn't mean everyone playing the game is bad or it's like being uncut, but it's a thing where it's like, this is... Now that I don't have to play something that that uh, that is that intensely manipulative i don't want to Mm. i'm happy to step away from that um so would you say that then stepping away from board games has given you more space to enjoy board games i it has and it it's given me more space to enjoy them and much less like there are still things i have i guess that i liked years ago and to revisit your idea of like people arguing about something that they then don't notice in a couple of years. Like I've kept the things I've kept because I, pr- I want to break them out again. Mm. And I don't feel a desire to uh, get more board games or get new board games or try something new or, you know, pick up the latest thing. And I always found that a little exhausting and a little tiring anyway. I think there were periods of innovation where maybe that was more exciting to do. Mm. I don't know. Maybe we're in a period of innovation right now still. I don't, no, but I feel like some of that, an explosion of sort of different ideas or something happened. We had a Cambrian explosion of board games maybe 10 years ago, but that's also mm-hmm. 10 years ago. Uh, and a lot of those like, you know, Cambrian explosion species, some of those died out or it turned out that they <laughs> they evolved into other things and they kind of should be dead, you know, because they don't... Uh, it's like when you go back and you re- retro revisit super old video games, it's like, yeah, some of these have aged really well. A lot of them haven't. And that's mm. how it goes. Um, there's a lot of films from the 40s that are actually still great. And there's also some where you just, you're like, no, this is very rote and I would not watch this again. What do you, what do you really feel like breaking out from your collection again? What's, what's the thing that's like... Oh, now, yeah, that one. I would play, I would still play like this week if something happened. I would probably still 
play uh, Feast for Odin mm-hmm. because, like, there's so many different combinations of things that can happen in this game where I'm going to get fish, I'm going to get a piece of armor, I'm going to get rock, I'm going to go to Canada, I'm going to go to Iceland, I'm going to fill Iceland up with rocks and, like, <laughs> put a fish on the ground. And now mm-hmm. I've surrounded a, uh, a token and I get that token. Um, and it's still a game that is visually like a, it's a fun puzzle and is visually appealing. It has a lot going on, but it doesn't feel too, I think theme wise or complexity wise, it's not super deep in its mechanics. Mm-hmm. It's actually, mm-hmm. it's broad, but it's shallow, which is something I get a lot from why I like a lot of tape. A lot of the tabletop RPG stuff I like should never be too deep or too complex. It should be kind of broad and like a lot of D20 based Dungeons and Dragons things are broadly like they hopefully they won't get too deep or complicated. They're supposed to be broad and allow you to try lots of different things and understand big number. It's good. Make big number bigger. Add number to other number. Exciting. You know, what you you're a bard. You can make me more. You can make me D6 more excited. That's good. Let's make number even bigger. Um, and that's, it's a bit, I don't know, it's a bit silly, but lots of people can relate to that. Uh, and that's accessible and accessible is good and accessible is how you reach more people and you make people feel included and happy and involved. Maybe, oh, this is maybe not the best analogy, but maybe also bear in part because it's also furry Tetris where you just arrange some bears until the bears are all crammed in and people can relate to that. Maybe a bit of dice hospital occasionally because that's, about chaining different cool things that you do and trying to work out like the coolest order for some doctors to do some stuff. But it's none of these things to me feel too complicated or too heavy. Mm. So things like that, uh, cockroach poker travels around a lot with me. I maybe burned out a bit on wingspan, but I did like play wingspan a few times in the pandemic because that was also for me a bit like dice hospital where it's partly like trying to build a few different trying to build an engine that isn't too complicated. And when you build it one tiny piece at a time, that's enough that you internalize it. You don't get too many different Mm -hmm. things thrown at you at once. And I think it's a very clever design because uh, it ramps up in a way that you can get used to it after a game or two, but there's still so much that you haven't seen. So maybe things like that, but also, I mean, I haven't at this point, I haven't played a tabletop RPG in a little bit. And I'd also just be inclined to break one out as well, to break out something or run a short adventure for somebody. Where can people roll a D6 and get more excited about other things, Baldine, and maybe a little bit more, find out a little bit more about Pacific Drive? I have the same, or I try to have the same handle everywhere on the internet, which is Paula Chino, which is P-A-U-L-L-I-C-I-N-O. And that is the key to my Instagram. It's the key to my uh, occasionally whimsical or nostalgic videos on TikTok. It's the key to my Twitter. It's the key to my Patreon. Mm-hmm. I think is Paula, maybe it's not. What can people um, get on your Patreon? Nothing. 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 Go, go okay. away. Leave me alone. Uh, I write, uh, I have toned down the amount of writing recently because I was originally doing like three or four posts, up to three or four posts a month on Patreon, uh, which was a lot and it was burning me out. And uh, board gaming, games, whatever, do anything a lot and it will burn you out. And I definitely burned out a bit on board games. Um, and I'd encourage everyone tr- to try if they can not to burn out on things. 
but I, I write. I write regular monthly updates for subscribers at a certain level. And otherwise, I write more generally um, about current ideas or experiences or sometimes about – I've ended up writing a lot about travel. I, I care about uh, class and poverty. And, like, the thing I'm writing right now is kind of – honestly, it's a theme I've touched on a lot before – so it's not necessarily something super new that I'm writing, but right now in a tab open on my PC, I have this draft about how I can see the city that I've lived in now for this many years changing around me because I can see gentrification happening. Uh, we had a party in our apartment building recently for the oldest resident because she moved into an assisted living facility. She's 84. Uh, and there are a couple of other older people there I hadn't met before. And all these people from the building came down to our apartment and we all hung out. And Vancouver has rent caps, which means our rent maximum 2.5% increase per year, which I never had in London. And a whole bunch of us just talked about how much we pay, how we can't afford to move anywhere, or how we just shouldn't move anywhere, even if we can afford to, because we'd sign a new lease and we'd be paying $1,000 more. Or for some of these people, if they just moved to a different apartment in this building, they'd be paying twice the amount that they're currently paying because of the cost of living going up. Uh, and I go to the store near where I live and the there is a price freeze on bagels and it's two ninety nine. And I remember when the bagels were one seventy nine and it wasn't when I was a kid and when things were in black and white, it was like eighteen months ago. Uh, and I just care about this stuff and I so I write about places I go, things I see, people I encounter, experiences I have. And uh, it was about nine years ago now. And the the, universe, the the experience, the anniversary caught up on me. But I wrote this thing on my old Tumblr blog called On Poverty. And it was about the experience of not having money all the time. And the weird thing of like eternally renting, but never having furniture. Because at the time, I'd never owned a table. I just rented places where you have somebody else's table as part of furniture. Uh, and it exploded. And like people from Shelter, the charity Shelter emailed me. Uh, well-known people uh, like in games on the internet like retweeted it and wrote to me about what I'd done like I'm talking about like authors like games narrative people people I admired who I didn't know followed my stuff mm. uh, but a lot of people were just saying I'd never thought about this or I didn't know that it was this difficult and I still find that we live in a society where people don't seem to understand that folks around them do or don't have a different amount of money and I feel like that's still one of the most important issues in the world today is who can afford what and what their experiences of like money and life are. And I can't talk in a great way. I can listen a lot to friends of mine who are people of color or trans, or I can listen a lot to women about their experiences, but I can't talk about that as authoritatively and just try and amplify them or validate them uh, or support them. But I can talk about, uh, being a guy who had both at this point in life, like I have some stocks and shares, which is wild because occasionally they just make a bit more money. I'm also the guy who bottomed out his overdraft and destroyed his credit rating. And like it had no money and no ability to get any money and had like nothing left and couldn't get a loan. And, you know, you bottom out your overdraft and they just, they charge you more money because you don't have money. I'm like, that's funny. How is that going to work? Um, and how punitive it is to be poor. Um, it's, 
it's very important to me. So I write about that a lot. And again, that's you can probably see how tangentially I sometimes think about games in this concept con context, or particularly uh, board games in this context. Because another thing with tabletop RPGs is they can be more affordable and they can be distributed by PDF. So it costs a couple of dollars and they're made by more kinds of people. And that's more exciting to me right now. And so, yeah, no, I write about some of that uh, and I occasionally write about games and uh, there's low, there's hundreds of past entries on my Patreon that people can read and they can read a lot of them for free. So they don't even have to sign up or anything. They can be just like, here's Paul's, essay about traveling around america or paul's essay about the immigration experience because that was something i went through or uh i don't know here's paul losing his mind about something because that's all i can do basically i'm i'm bad at most things but i can write and i can play games and i can walk through life with the entitlement of a white guy who just vomits words and i'm lucky enough that people read some of them and i try to be uh mindful about the things that i say and what i express uh and that includes deleting a lot of stuff that thank god people never see published paul thank you so much for sharing your time i really really appreciate it if you want to hear the full interview with paul dean where he gives more insight into the board game industry as well as our first thoughts on hegemony they're available to all our patreon subscribers patreon.com forward slash no pun included let's talk about a game i thought was going to be about fish but in fact means come on in Japanese. Koi Koi is a traditional game in the public domain. The original designer is unknown, but our edition comes from publisher Pencil First Games with development by Eduardo Baraf, artwork by Vincent Dutrait and a solo mode by Bruno Catala. Alliance says, Koi Koi is my favourite push your luck game. Can't wait. Go ahead, Efka. Well, that sets me up, doesn't it? Uh, so Koi Koi is... A traditional game and i think we have to put that right at the front and center and start talking about it from that perspective because that's the only way i can approach it in fact the closest even though these games are nothing alike the closest i have felt to koi koi in terms of of a game that i'm familiar with is a game i've talked about a few times in the past and that's durak or uh, as i would call it durnus uh, which is uh, the Lithuanian word for fool, uh, which is a classic uh, sort of pan-Soviet trick-taking game, right? And I guess I would relate Durak or Durnius uh, to it more in terms of feeling rather than anything else. Because for me, I don't know a lot yet about uh, card game culture, in in japan but it's a subject i'm heavily researching right now so i don't know who would have played it and what circumstances they would have played it in but i do know a little bit and it's that card games in many places across the world in the past were looked down on uh and in terms of as something as insalubrious right uh but but it is something that's been passed through generations from one person to another and, and I certainly learned Durak as a kid, right? And so for me, it was this sort of journey of discovering a game. It, it, it's effectively my first game, right? And, 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 you know, playing around with cards, with mechanisms that are easy to understand and easy to play and feel at times a touch random. Like, I imagine 
hearts or euchre does to anyone who's American, right? In that same way. Um, but then the, the more you come to grips with it, the more you find strategy. And, and I suspect that Koi Koi would probably have a lot of overlap uh, as a traditional game with those sensations uh, for people who have learned it as a traditional game. So, um, so let's let's uh, touch on the elephant in the room. Koi Koi is not played with cards that we see as traditional cards. Uh, it's played with a Hanafuda deck, which is a a, a Japanese version of a deck of cards, uh, which differs in, in some way significantly from what we see as the fifty-two card deck. First of all, instead of having uh, four suits uh, with uh, 10 cards, uh, or more actually, if you count, you know, the... Jack Queen King. Yeah, so 13 cards, right? This has 12 suits with four cards each, each suit representing a month. So January, uh, February, what comes next? I forget. <laughs> uh, and And those cards, the suits on them are not denoted with simple iconography. Uh, and there's a reason for that. Uh, they're denoted by artwork motifs so for example uh january will have a certain type of uh forestry depicted or 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 you know like uh march has a certain type of flower right uh, like certain type of like nature t- style growth and the reason for that is because uh hanafuda decks historically have been used to masquerade the fact that you are playing a card game. Sorry, sir, policeman. These these are not cards. In fact, they are just pretty pictures, and and that's why also the cards are not made out of traditional material either. They're not just paper, you know, like cards. They're sort of wrapped in this little paper frame to look like a little picture, like you know, like like what you would hang on a wall, but about the size of a postage stamp uh, yeah postage stamp and they literally the cards are literally the size of a slightly elongated postage stamp right um they are small and they are thick and they are fiddly to shuffle uh, they are inscrutable in terms of what card this actually is because it's it's not always easy to figure out oh yeah that's you know january or that's august or that's a bright or that's a seed uh, or uh, and again, these are terms for what types of cards they are. And here is a big kudos to Pencil First Games for not creating only a box of Hanafuda cards uh, for a Western market that is immediately accessible. Uh, because uh, there's uh, so Koi Koi is a two-player game, so they've included uh, booklets in terms of what all the cards are, what sets they belong to, and they're really, really nice, handy references. I think I would have found the game nearly impossible to learn without those little references. But because we had those references, it was actually quite easy to get into it and learn it and appreciate it for what it is. Um, Now, what it is, is effectively a set collection push your luck game, to put it in very board game jargon where each player starts a game with eight cards in their hand, and there's also eight cards face up on the table. Each turn, you will play one card from your hand. You never draw back. Uh, And if the card that you played 
The suit, or the month, as it were, matches a card that is on the table. You get to take the card that you've played and the card on the table and put them in your little scoring area. So these cards are now eligible for scoring. Uh, then you will draw the top card of the deck, put it on the table, and again, if it matches any of the months that are on the table, you will pick up those two cards and move them in your scoring area. So you have the potential to score twice on your turn and move those cards to where you want them to be. However, if they don't match, they just stay on the table. And so whilst the number of cards on the table tableau constantly sort of shifts, sometimes dwindles, sometimes, you know, goes back up, the cards in your hand get, get you know, like the hand size becomes smaller and smaller and smaller, sometimes going to nothing, which is not good. You don't want that. Uh, and the objective is, is to collect various sets. So, for example, some cards have, instead of just being part of a certain month, like a suit, uh, they also have features like scrolls. Um, uh, and there's three different types of scrolls, red scrolls, red scrolls with writing, and blue scrolls. And I imagine this sounds arcane to a lot of people. And trust me, it's less arcane than you think it is. Um, and then there's brights, which are like, um, cards that are meant to evoke like a sense of like grandeur. Um, so you have like this setting moon or whatever. So if you collect enough brights, that's also a set. If you collect seeds, that's a set. If you collect dregs, which are cards are just like, there's just some nature on it. There's nothing fantastical about it. It's just boring old, the dregs of nature, right? Uh, that's also said, but these sets are worth different point values. So if you just collect 10 dregs, that's just one point. That's not good enough. If you collect four brights, for example, or a rainy bright, which is because one of the brights is a special rainy bright because it's from November, uh, <laughs> um, you, you can get like seven points or six points or five points, right? And the trick is that as soon as someone collects a set that is a legit scorable set, right? The game can end at that point. You as that person have the right to either say shobu, which means game over, you know, game set, score, match, whatever, right? Or you can say koi koi, which means come on, right? Let's let's go, let's push our luck. And if you say koi koi, uh, you, you, better, you better be ready to deliver because basically what you're saying is, no, I'm not going to score this set and that's, by the way, you winning the round, because only one person gets points uh, most of the time during a round. Uh, you're saying to the other person, you have a chance to complete yours before, before I complete mine. If you complete yours before I complete mine, you will get double points. So you're, when you say koi koi, you're risking a lot, right? But you want to risk it, because anytime you get at least seven points, that is a great score, which means you double your score, right? <laughs> like, it's it's if you win, you win a lot more. And you want to win a lot more because winning a game with one point is kind of disappointing. You basically just won the right to start first in the next game. Uh, and uh, what you do want is you want to double your score or even maybe quadruple your score, as it were, because if your opponent called Koi Koi and you won and you have, you know, like... Uh, effectively doubled your set that was worth five points. Now it's worth 10 points, but because they call Koi Koi, now it's worth 20 points. That's amazing. That's the best score you can imagine, probably. Um, and so it's this game where, where you often don't score a lot. 
but you have the potential to score a lot. And because any given game of Koi Koi is actually 12 games where you go back and forth, winning, scoring, you know, a little bit more, and then you tally up at the end, you have this strange dynamic shift of like, this is a slow round, this is maybe even just a draw where nobody scores any points, uh, to suddenly going, boom, 14, boom, 14, right? Uh, and and that's kind of exciting. Did you feel that excitement? I really liked this game. I found it less confusing. You thought I was going to struggle uh, to learn all the different uh, suits. Well, only because I know that you struggle with because poker hands. Because I struggle with poker hands. But that's, that's arcane to me in itself. Because this uh, trumps this and this trumps... But why? I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, but this had a very nice, clear booklet of what you needed to collect for mm -hmm. your set and how many points it would score, right? Mm -hmm. And and if you uh, got one more card over that set, you would score extra points and so on. It was very clear. Um, and I think I found it a bit less confusing than you as well um, because I really like the artwork, but I really like the fact that, you know, this particular flower, like willow, well, willow's not a flower, but this particular mm -hmm. plant related to a certain month mm -hmm. um and and it made a lot of sense like why would cherry blossoms not be in february <laughs> you know yeah uh, sure. and and i got really into that as we were playing and i i think i found that less arcane than you maybe yes but then again you are really into flowers and gardening i do like and, gardening and whilst i am utterly not opposed to gardening and i do enjoy it from time to time i am i'm not well versed in the world of flowers no and... but this is a this is it's like wingspan it's a chance to learn yes you know, i guess the different flowers um and you know we're in the same hemisphere at least as japan so mm -hmm. it's not that far apart of what no, grows when yeah. right mm -hmm. so um yeah no i really like this game a lot um you taught it to me really nicely um which always helps <laughs> you made it very clear as to what the scoring conditions were and the winning conditions were um and it was just a case of trying to do it, mm -hmm. it you know it, there was no kind of um tricks or different avenues that you could go down it was just here's what you have to do now try and do it and i lost <laughs> this is true <laughs> uh, but out of the 12 games we kind of won some and lost some each it was just that at the end your points yeah. I think you scored six more points than I did was that it was that only true? six yeah you you were always that's the thing about this game you always have a chance like even if you're far apart from your opponent yeah you're you're, you're only you can a catch up couple of good hands yeah. away from but that that's the thing isn't it like yeah a couple of my hands and and I don't know like you said you know maybe if we were more experienced at this game mm -hmm. we would know more what to do but um so maybe it's just because i'm inexperienced at this game but there were a couple of times when i got a hand and i thought ah what can i do with this right and i never kind of managed to pull back from it well here's here's the interesting thing that's that's for me where the meat of the game and and sort of the depth started to emerge because if you take it at face value it's like what's on the table play a card then flip a card from the top mm. it could be anything mm -hmm. and the game is pretty random in that mm -hmm. regard and that's why i equated it to durak because durak yeah. is a game of chance it is 
it is a skillful game of chance, but it is a game of chance. And I think it, it, it elicits a similar feeling. But the more you play Durak, the more you notice the patterns and, and avenues. And I think it's, it's similar with hearts mean, as well. You mean like because you could play a dreg uh, and, you, and you know it doesn't match anything. So you're just going to leave it out there. But you know you've got something in your hand that you can match to that dreg that you've just played and then take both of them into your your scoring area exactly and your opponent knows that you know that that's probably what you're doing but then are are you just bluffing or are you you know are you just forcing them to take a drag and waste their turn to do nothing so there's a lot of really clever play in baked into the system right you often look at like your hand of cards because you can't get more so if your plan is to collect (laughs) free drag uh, sorry free brights right you need to make sure that your hand is equipped to do that. Identify in which months the brights reside and what are the chances of them coming out? What are the chances that your opponent is holding one of the brights and preventing you from doing that? Or, or the scrolls, or the, there's a really obscure one, which is deer boar butterfly, mm-hmm. which are seeds. So seeds are kind of like dregs. They're worth a bit more than dregs, but because you need only five, to score a set, but they just give you a point, right? And a point isn't good enough. Ten dregs give you a point. That's also not good enough. Mm. You know, five scrolls, any if there are any scrolls, give you a point. That's not good enough. You want three scrolls with writing red or three blue scrolls, right? And again, there's there's all these scoring conditions that are high and low, and you want to chance for the high ones. But the one you're chancing for, you have to identify what else lives in that suit. What do you need to block? What do you need to save? What do you need to spend? Every turn is full of decisions. But it's like any kind of betting game where uh, you will get more points or money or whatever it is uh, for something, but it's going to come out less, Mm -hmm. right? Or you'll get less points or money or whatever but it will the chances of it coming out are higher mm-hmm. so it's a balance between what you're trying to get and and how many points you're going to get for it and my point about um knowing the game better and you will get better at it is that it will be a bit quicker because like you were just saying uh not there's not always you know seeds or brights or whatever in a certain month mm-hmm. and you would learn which months had the brights and, and specifically the bright that you were looking for or um, the seed that you were looking for to get the boar deer butterfly or whatever. Yes. So you would know that quicker because I think, uh, you know, there is a kind of worry that you're going to take yonks on your turn looking, <laughs> looking through the mm. booklet every time. And and I think it was fine for us. We And we did, you know, play it pretty casually. Yes. And I'm not sure I would go as far as to say it was a... Um, wait to wait till there's a board game in my cornflakes uh-huh. uh, game because it does take quite a while to play um and it's it can be quite intense if your brain's not quite awake yet but um it we played it pretty casually and you know we were looking up stuff all the time but you would get quicker at that you would get more um smooth at that well that's the thing i think the reason i wouldn't necessarily recommend going out and getting Koi Koi, right? Or a Hanafuda deck, as it were, right? Uh, Is because I think a lot of the game is, I don't want to tie it to nostalgia, but I think a lot of it does rely on nostalgia because uh, if, if within your culture, Koi Koi was the game, you will have maybe fond or the opposite feelings, <laughs> right? 
uh, for it. But at the same time, uh, I think if you grew up with a different game, like if I grew up with Durak, right? Mm -hmm. Do I want another game like Durak um, in my life where I already have Durak? I'm not saying the answer is no. I am just saying it's a question that everyone should ask themselves individually, and especially something from a different culture. Do you do, you, do they want to explore that? Do they want to experience that? And will they find something good in Koi Koi? Yes, right? But, but you also kind of need to know that that's what you want because that deck can be inscrutable at times. Mm. Yeah, this that's, that's very true. But for me, like... I was more interested in it because it was from, not only was it from a different culture, but it was from, uh, it, it was a completely different type of card. It was a card game, but without normal, you know, what I think of as normal cards, right? Yeah. Like when you uh, showed me uh, Durak, right, that yeah. that is a card game from a different culture for me because I grew up with like mm. gin rummy and clock patience and stuff like that yeah, right yeah um so that was already a, a different culture but to have something that is completely different and the reason that you told me about why uh they didn't look like uh, a 52 card you know hearts club space yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, deck was even more fascinating mm. that that background behind it and what what different the way different people come up with different concepts for essentially the same thing right yeah is is fascinating and i love that it, it made me want to play it even more a couple of notes on the production of uh the deck that we have mm. which comes from pencil first games uh first of all uh the artwork is from vincent dutre right and it, it does follow the traditional motifs of what a hanafuda deck should feature and looks like but it is a lot more elaborate than the traditional artwork that you generally see in a Hanafuda deck. That to me is personally is a bonus. I don't know if it's like anathema to, you know, <laughs> uh, people who enjoy having a Hanafuda deck or playing with Hanafuda cards. Um, so there is that. This, but I, I love the artwork. I think the artwork on it is great. The second thing, again, this is my total lack of knowledge showing, right? Because this is my first Hanafuda deck. So I don't know if they're all like this. But the the sort of the paper that forms the picture frame around the card is a bit I don't know if this is just my copy or if this is this you know printing of of this version of the deck or they're all like that but but they peel uh you know they very easily peel they're not going to last long when you're shuffling them all the time yeah exactly yeah, they're going to start I, peeling off when we played the game i had to shuffle uh very carefully i in fact did what you know magic players call a power shuffle where you just go <laughs> one two three four five six seven on the table and then you know create stacks of seven uh seven stacks of whatever cards right mm -hmm. uh and i think like if i took care to do it like that rather than try and shuffle them like a regular card deck which you can't even because it's too big because the cards are quite thick right mm -hmm. um so so that was fine if i was gentle with them so there's one thing you have to be very careful with these cards uh, uh and then another thing about it is that um koi koi is obviously not the only game that you can mm. play with a hanafuda deck there are other games for example there's another popular game called hachi hachi which means eight eight uh the trouble with this version is that traditionally hanafuda decks come in two colors of paper backing so that's black and red uh, and 
this version only comes in black. If you were wanted to play something like Hachi Hachi, that requires two decks, one of them with black backing, the other one with red backing. So you couldn't do that unless, of course, maybe they do a second Kickstarter, they mm. do a red version. That's a possibility. I have no idea what Pencil First's plans are for this um, going forward, whether they're going to do a red back deck. Maybe. Uh, I kind of hope they do because I'd like to try Hachi Hachi, which is a game for three to seven players, I believe. It's a higher player count game. Um, so so there's, there's, there's another, there's some considerations whether that's the deck that you buy. Um, I've looked into alternatives that are available here in England. There's not a whole lot. Um, you can buy, so some people will know this, that Nintendo, uh, that's the video game company, Nintendo, was originally a card manufacturer. They manufactured cards. Specifically, the cards they manufactured were the Hanafuda cards. So actually, the Nintendo online store now sells you commemorative Hanafuda decks, uh, both in black and red, but with like Mario artwork <laughs> instead of regular artwork. Why not? Or other Nintendo characters, you know, like Link and uh, Kirby and whatnot, right? So I think I prefer the one we have in terms of artwork. But if you're a big uh, Mario fan, that could be another deck that you consider. So that's all the games. If you have anything to say about any of them, don't forget to drop me an email, elaine at nopunincluded.com. Or if you have any general questions or comments like these. Tim says, on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, Efka wished for clarification on some of the questions you were answering. It occurs to me that with a little organisation, you could invite questioners onto your Discord server and it might provide some fun interactions, kind of like a phone-in. I mean, we already kind of have a space on the Discord server for specifically this purpose. We're definitely not going to do phone-ins. That's um, it's not something we wish to do or want to do. Uh, I think we're happy with the way that we get to answer questions now. We don't always need to know the answer, that's part of the joy of corresponding with the audience. Fergal says, I'm so, so sorry, but it is with great regret that I must inform you that the start of the Aeon Trespass episode, where Elaine making Efka play 20 questions about the board game documentary title, was disproportionately entertaining. I want Elaine to compose new problems, to choose something, anything to do with board games, an oblique 80s fantasy game, a specific and odd rule, a component or factoid, and let Efka bloodhound-like, sniff his way to what it is through a series of yes or no questions. I'm glad that my misery is entertaining <laughs> uh, to people. I mean, what is the point of doing a podcast if not to hear me suffer? <laughs> um, sure, we can do more of that. Are you ready to torture me more, Elaine? <laughs> <laughs> Should I? Should I? <sighs> I know the answer is yes. <laughs> I know the answer is it's, yes. It's what the listeners want, Efka. Okay. We have to give them what they want. Um, Alan Moore once said that uh, the audience doesn't know what it wants. If it knew what it wanted, it wouldn't be the audience. I lost respect for Alan Moore when uh, he decided to do that masterclass thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, what are you doing? 
like you're, you're I, supposed to I'm this, a man of principles, right? right? This yeah. mystery figure of principles, and you're doing masterclass. Okay, it must be short for few, Bob. I don't know. Who knows? We spoke about minis at the beginning of the episode, so we should end it that way too. We've had this from Tom. For some time, I've been thinking about possible unexplored genres for miniature games to expand into. Currently, miniature games, distinct from board games with miniatures, are basically synonymous with war games or very occasionally sports games. I would love to play a game that required me to buy and paint some minis that wasn't about hurting people. So why do you think this is, Efka? Why why don't we see more miniature games that are in different genres? That's a great question. Why aren't there more of them? I imagine it's something to do with the entrenchment of Kickstarter culture and simply the fact that a lot of people, a lot of publishers, are doing what is already proven to be successful. I think that's the way Kickstarter went. Um... I mean, that, that, that was the way it was always going to go. Once Zombicide did the Zombicide thing, everyone copied Zombicide. And then if, if someone did a minor alteration that somehow worked, everyone adapted that. And I think, I think a lot of Kickstarter publishers believe that they have to do minis in a certain way and put minis in games that do certain things that's how, that's how it's going to sell that's how they make the money the big bucks so you, the you, millions of dollars on kickstarter <laughs> you don't think a kind of uh, like a like a one man and his dog style of game where you had to you had loads of miniatures of sheep and you had to move them across the board into a pen right and the other player had to do the same thing on into a pen on their on the other side you're describing you a bricola <laughs> no no i'm not okay. no 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 where like you had like i don't know 12 sheep or something yeah. all in a block still agricola right? yeah <laughs> all in a block and you you had to push them like yeah. an army i guess of sheep yeah towards you know a goal like a like a capture the flag kind of thing i don't right. know right okay <laughs> but, but it's no, sheep. I, I should have thought better about this i mean i think people would buy that game elaine i think you should start working on it <laughs> Uh, if if you would buy Elaine's uh, sheep herding game where you have like asymmetric dogs and I, I, asymmetric herders uh, and maybe even asymmetric sheep. Uh, I've thought of a problem. Yes. Or immediately yes. Uh, you would have to paint a number of sheep. Yeah, um, but, but if they're different sheep, what if the sheep are, they, are like, mean, what if you live in a irradiated world and the sheep have mutated oh. to have special special superpowers? Right? Oh, I see. Like what? Like what, what superpower would a sheep have? I don't know. It emits a burst of lightning around it. So you have to herd it with something that's immune to electricity. I see. Like, a, like wellies. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right. There's ideas there, right, for I the see. plucking is all I'm saying. No, I think I think there are some games like that. I, I remember Dawn of the Peacemakers. That's not a heavy miniatures featuring board game, but that was styling itself as a, as a kind of a pacifist-themed uh, game, you know, where it was like sort of an arena battler, but they weren't battling, as it were. The, the game didn't quite gel for me, and I think maybe that was part of its problem. I think there's always room for these ideas to break ground and stand out as something different. Because whenever there's entrenchment, there's always the other side of the pendulum, right? Maybe we just haven't seen it yet. Uh, but, but I am noticing more and more games 
they do lend themselves more to uh you know like there's there's a great boom in nature themed games right now after wingspan um but they obviously don't feature a lot of miniatures right mm. and and i guess there is that tradition that a miniature comes from you know like they used they used wargaming miniatures for Dungeons and Dragons. Sure, and yeah. then, you know, Dungeons and Dragons had the fantasy heroes. And now you have this sort of like fantasy kind of landscape. A lot of it is recycling the same old and same old and basing it on traditions. So I think it's right for the plucking. And I think it just takes the right person, the right publisher to come along and show us how it's meant to be done. Right. But you're right. There is an absolutely distinct lack of that sort of thing. And it's just a space that is wide open right now. Uh, and someone should score that goal. Nice, that was a good answer. That's all the cardboard for now. Thank you so much for your questions and thank you for listening. On the next podcast, we'll be talking about Carnegie, Wir sind das Volk, Whale Riders. So if you have any words of wisdom or any questions about those, please do let us know. In the meantime, Efka, if they want more pun-free fun, where can they find it and where can they find our bonus podcast episodes? Well, the bonus podcast episode, the first one, is live right now to subscribers of our Patreon campaign if you pledge for any of the tiers that are available you will get access to the rss feed and 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 you will get the bonus episodes uh there's only one right now but there'll be there more uh, and that field feed will also feature all our main episodes as well so y- you will you will get everything in one feed in this very first episode there's more from paul dean there's also our first impressions of hegemony lead you class to victory that is an exciting game if you want to hear about that patreon.com slash no pun included we are currently doing a pledge drive for our channel we've been doing this for nine years uh we we have some goals and dreams and also we want to eat uh so if you would like to support us we made a video uh on our main youtube channel that's youtube.com slash no pun included uh and uh, we'll leave a link in the description of this episode as well for that episode for that video uh and it explains what we do how we do it and why we need your support so please give that a watch please consider supporting us if you enjoy this podcast i'm doing a big sort of sales pitch this time (laughs) around because you know it's the pledge drive it matters to us uh we love doing this as our job we love talking about board games uh we love doing this podcast and your response to this podcast has been amazing uh so thank you very much if you are supporting thank you very much if you're just listening uh just wanted to say a big thank you to everyone uh over to you elaine finally what is the game of the episode i think it's going to be winder film it's a really big toss-up between koi koi and winder film they're very different games. They're both abstract card games. They're very different games. But I think the ease of access and and the instant fun you get from Wine the Film just puts it ever so slightly over the top of Koi Koi. And that's the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening again. And with that, why don't you say goodbye, Elaine? Are we doing that? <laughs> Are we not? I, well, I thought it's we were doing it. It's what the people want. Yeah, but we said we we're going to do it one last time as a one-off, and of course, like seven thousand people wrote in to say, "Yeah, you're doing it again." <laughs> <sighs> okay, okay, one more time from one the top. One more time. Why don't you say goodbye, Elaine? Goodbye, Elaine. Goodbye, Elaine. <laughs>